I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And folks, we carry on our return to race series rolls on, pardon the pun, because we have got an hour of power here on all things related to your bike performance and race day execution. Today, we go through optimal bike fit, your posture, your equipment, your pacing strategies. It is all covered in this episode, and it features two of the best in the industry, Ivan O'Gorman and Chris Soden of IOG Bike Fit and Consulting. So in today's episode, you're going to learn, is aero really everything? What sort of tire pressure should I run in racing? How do I know if and when I need to get a bike fit? We really get into the nitty gritty here. And as you'll hear, IOG's approach to consulting is informed by research, while their recommendations are driven by years of experience. Put simply, they're going to help you. They're going to help you as an athlete, not only be more comfortable, but ride faster and equally for triathletes, run faster off the bike. Now, Ivan and Chris are based in Boulder, Colorado. You can always go and visit them at their studio there, but they'll also be at the San Francisco satellite facility right with us at the Purple Patch Center. Yep, right in the middle of San Francisco in mid-May and pretty much monthly here on out. If you are interested in seeing them in person, feel free to head to the website and go to the services section, purplepatchfitness.com, and we can see you there. But also, they are available for virtual consultations. Yes, the Zoomification of BikeFit. It's highly valuable for you folks that don't have great resources next to you. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. I hope that your early season racing is either coming up right around the corner and getting really excited, or your first races were wonderful. Either way, we're here to help and support as needed. As ever, reach out to us at info at purplepatchfitness.com or, of course, head to the website at purplepatchfitness.com. But right now, fasten your seatbelt, get your helmet on. We're talking about bike, riding, speed, aero, isn't everything. I give you the meat and potatoes. Yes, it is the meat and potatoes, and today, well, we've got a cracker. Some might call it a barn burner. We are joined by not just one, but both of the maestros from IOG Bike Fit and Consulting, Ivan and Chris. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for having us. It's our uh, our pleasure to join you today. Thank you, Matt. That's, that's uh, Chris and I'm Ivan, so people will be able to tell the funny accents apart that's i was just about to filter it out it's you've got we've got the sensible one here chris we've got me that likes to pontificate and then ivan who also likes to pontificate so chris you've got a job in hand here to keep uh, the naughty boys in order if you can okay keeping it on the rails keeping it on the rails good man so today is all about the bike and specifically it's all about racing preparation and execution we know that racing is thankfully coming back and our goal today is to provide answers to help folk 
so, so they can have a great experience in their upcoming races. For many, it's been a while, and we want to help them optimize bike performance. But I think it's important to kick off it as well. We also want to help them run well off the bike. And so what I've done is I've set up a, a few questions. I've gave, given you just the faintest glimpse into some of these that are categorized in areas so that the three of us can ramble down some rabbit holes, but but uh, try and keep away and keep us on track. Uh, so uh, I, I will point out as we go into this that we've gathered quite a lot of questions from our own Purple Patch athletes for today. So you're going to get some questions direct for them. So if you're ready, I'm going to dive right in with the first category. And I think we have to start pretty broad here. We're going to start with basically bike and fit questions, try and anchor it, and we'll start at a higher, and then we're going to dive in as we go. So so I'm going to start with personally one of my least favorite sayings, but uh, here we go. I'm going to start with a common saying, and it's often applied to bike fit. You see it on T-shirts. You see it on hashtags in social media. Aero is everything. And so in the world of bike fitting, do you believe that to be the case? For a small, I'll jump in here. So thanks, Matt. Um, I think for a small percentage of, of the audience, it will be, you know, it's the icing on the cake. But what is the cake? And that's power. Like you've got to generate great power. You've got to be able to sustain the position. You've got to have a level of comfort and you've got to be able to run off it. So I suppose if we ignore <laughs> those nuggets, then arrow is everything. But we can't just ignore those nuggets. And I know you and you and I and Chris, we can sound like broken records when it comes to the fundamentals and the basics, because everyone wants to just get into, you know, the more sexier topics of uh, aero and new equipment, emerging technologies, and does spending a large amount of money guarantee me speed? So you know that it's 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 uh, it's realistic that your audience are kind of large can be largely focused on aero because a lot of money is spent in that area to not alone develop and and improve product, but also to tell the story. So it's what we get bombarded with, you know. So aero is very, very important to experienced athletes who have enjoyed the early increases in their performance curve. Those early increases where they went from a road bike to an air to a tri bike or an aero bike to where, you know, they're chopping half an hour off their 70.3 time collectively um, and so on. And then those gains begin to become a little bit harder. And it's at that point where they have to reevaluate what they were doing as hobbyists and, and kind of turn their mind to nowhere highly competitive kind of triathletes. So I think that kind of happens through a, a through an athlete's kind of journey. And um, you don't put the arrow is everything in front of the other portion of the journey. And I will reiterate that we are not purely focusing on the bike. We also try to evaluate and consider like how well athletes will run off the bike because I've never enjoyed an email where somebody might say, you know, I went 16 minutes quicker on the bike, but I ran, you know, 30 minutes slower on the marathon. It's like, you know, there's, there's no fun in that for anybody. So, um, so aero in this case is not everything, but if you get to the point where you're a Sam Appleton or you're somebody who's performing at the very pointy end, or indeed, Matt, if you're, if you're sore because you miss Kona by two minutes or something like that, 
maybe it is time to focus really in on on aerodynamics on the bike and could that have contributed to a better split without um, impacting your run and would that have gotten you your corner qualification? So that'll kind of give you a broad stroke of where I am on aero is everything. And it, it, it sparked a, an interesting thing for, for me, knowing that you guys, you guys do, I know this isn't about your services, but I'm genuinely interested in here. We talked about the fundamentals, the building blocks, so making sure you can generate power, making sure that you're in a sustainable position that's comfortable, and then the refining components, critical finding components of the, the higher-end athlete, which is aerodynamics and choices of equipment, et cetera. You guys do services in person, Boulder, Denver, and of course, San Francisco at the Purple Patch Center now. You also do online consultations. I think you call them OCAs. Can, can you just spend a, a couple of minutes? Is, is it possible? Obviously, everything's possible in person. On the online components, are you able to effectively address the building block fundamental stuff as well as the aero stuff and vice versa? Yeah, that's a it's a great question, Matt. And I think um, Ivan and I, when we first started on this journey of doing our online consult and kind of positional audits, we would have we would have maybe asked the same question. Uh, I think what's been fascinating and fun and and very rewarding is how much impact we have been able to make in those spaces through an online consult where we can grab some video from an athlete, um, dissect that video, go through it with them, have discussions with the athlete about what they're experiencing, what we see. Um, in a lot of ways, I think we've been overwhelmed at, uh, at the amount of, of impact that we can make. And I think what struck me in particular is how you can still be a part of an athlete's journey, if it is, even if uh, remotely, to start. Um, we've had a lot of those where clients have also then traveled out to IOG, to San Francisco, um, to also have those one-on-one -on -one encounters. But I think by and large, we can assess a lot of those things. We can see some of the elements that we might address if that athlete is in the studio with us. And that's uh, that's been super rewarding, as I said before. Well, well let, me, let me jump in as an interim moderator, if you're okay with this, Matt. So client sends you a video, Chris. What's the, what's the kind of first things you're looking for? Uh, site we're talking about, for those of you at home, we're talking about a site profile video. Someone's on their Wahoo. They're just like in a piece of work. What, what are some of the basics you're looking at and how do they pertain to the fundamentals? Yeah, I'd say the first thing we're assessing is just kind of maybe where their saddle height is. Where are they sitting on the saddle? How are they positioned on the bike? Um, how is their upper body structured? It's, it's amazing how I, I think just being able to see kind of big, huge gains, saddle heights that are four centimeters too high, four centimeters too low. Um, but we're just doing an overall assessment of the contact points, how your athlete engages with the bike, how they look on the bike, connecting that with the feedback that you've gotten from our, our rider history form that they fill out. Um, so that's ultimately where we start. And, and that that's, uh, sorry to dump in, Ivan, but that that's, I think, something that's really interesting there as well you sort of said how the how the athlete interacts with the bike and a lot of people think of fitting as just getting the points in space so seat height length between bars and uh, and seat etc cetera, etc cetera. but it, there's also this education that comes with it and i would imagine that over video you can really go through an edu educational process of holding posture making sure that the 
angle of the hip departure, et cetera, is, is really aligned. I, mean, I guess that comes to, to life in that, those sort of sessions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes even, even lower hanging fruit than that. Like I don't, I don't, nobody ever explained to me what a tri saddle does, why a triathlon saddle is important for this position. Um, I just was told to go buy a comfortable saddle and I'm sitting on it in a different way and it's not comfortable. So I, I think as much as uh, the more we do this, the more we learn that it's a message that is worth repeating and worth doing. And there's a, a growing huge market out there that, that wants that information and, and walks away, I think, feeling very good about the interaction. What, what um, so that, that's interesting. Let me, let me ask you this, because we, we want to focus on racing today. I wanted to touch off on those because really interested in that side of things, but, um, how close to races or events do you feel? And I know this is a generalization, so, you know, shoot me if you need to, but how, how close to events do you feel athletes can go before they make changes to their fit, to their equipment? Um, I'll jump in here and I'll say that I think it depends, Matt, on how long they've been riding the actual position. What's the kind of muscle memory associated and, and where has their training been? Because like, you know, sometimes we have that dilemma where a person will come to us in the studio and, um, you know, they're kind of up against a race within the final couple of weeks. And by and large, there's probably more risk with making changes than actually letting them get through that race and then getting back to the drawing board. But if somebody came to us two weeks before a race and said, well, I've just kind of gotten this bike or I've been doing training on another bike. And now I'm kind of dusting this off and I'm pulling it out for the first race. Then, like, I think you can make some pretty, you know, reasonably sized changes, particularly when they're low risk, uh, that close to a race. And like low risk changes are more like if somebody was sitting very low and they're complaining about not like their quads being overworked and feeling a little bit of like patella tension and so on. It's like, that's a kind of a low hanging fruit that they need more knee extension. Their quads will thank them. It's not like you're going to raise that satellite to where, um, you know, your hamstrings are going to light up or you're going to aggravate a lower back. So there's certain changes that you can make before a race. And I think they are low risk. Um, if you recall when we were working with Sam on the lead up to his great race in Daytona, um, we did a, an aerodynamic kind of evaluation and also, um, just another quick little kind of positional review. And that was a classic case where uh, we had even some good computational fluid dynamic data that would, would say there was a little bit of achievements in CDA to be found. But I clearly said to him, Sam, you've got too much to lose by changing this three weeks out, you know, and, and, and look at how, um, I guess sensitive riders are to change and some riders are more sensitive to change than others. So we just tried to evaluate that. Um, but let me let me think back out of that for a second and let's just say if uh, I remember somebody giving some good advice when this pandemic hit in, saying it was a great time to work on fundamentals off the bike, like now that you're not racing, evaluate your position, evaluate your run form, evaluate your swim. And for those that didn't take pieces of advice like that and now are one month out from a race. Um, look, the fundamentals won't change. Are you enjoying your position? How comfortable are the contact points? Are you 
are is your kind of performance where it needs to be in relation to like are you struggling to hit numbers are you struggling to run well off the bike uh where is it and then let's start addressing that now that's very different for people but i for different athletes across the board but what i would say and there's no getting away from the fundamentals the saddle is critical it's going to set up good posture that posture is going to create great power and if you don't get that right you're already on a major slippery slope to having uh, a kind of a good performance. After that, if your feet are comfortable and if the front end is well set up for where your time in the saddle has been, for the type of riding you're trying to do, and then like they're the fundamentals. And that's the low hanging fruit that Chris looks for in the OCAs. And uh, then biomechanically sound means like for your skeletal kind of size for some of the... um, you know, for some of your proportions, are these contact points in the right place for that? So there's a kind of a postural element, there's a biomechanical element, and then there's obviously, is it serving you in training and racing? So they're the fundamentals. They're never going to change no matter what different questions we ask around them. Uh, They're not going to change. And I would say, look, to be safe, anything closer to two weeks to a race is probably too much of a risk. But anything from two weeks back from a race there's definitely, there's just, there could be low hanging fruit there that would be low risk and you could make a change and it could make a big improvement to your your kind of uh, overall performance. It's a great, great, great summary. So, so now we can get a little more narrow on our questioning and um, I'm going to move to my internal category too. And we want to get to some, some specific fit and riding questions here. And, uh, and most of these questions are actually directly from purple patch athletes. But but the reason I like them is that they are they are literally the questions that I hear all the time. So here's a here's a common one to kick us off, boys. Power production. There are two main questions or worries that athletes see, and I'm going to tell you both of them. First, why they seem to produce more power riding outside versus when they're sitting on a trainer. So I can sit at 200 watts, but when I go inside, I at the same effort, same heart rate, it's 180. That, that's question number one. And then number two, the power numbers that they tend to see are higher on their road bike over their time trial position. Could you address those two things? Yeah. You want to take the first one, Chris? Sure. Um, I think... I think generally with with power difference between road and arrow, we expect that. I think as fitters, we would oh, go. That's the second one. Yeah, I want You're the not taking one. the second question there. <laughs> he's, take, he's taking the easy one, isn't he? That's what he's doing. Hey, let him have it. Let him have it. I'll just, take the first one. I just want the All right. Now get out of here. The first one, Matt, I would say is like the trainer to outdoor, it's just you're interacting so differently. Like most of us are riding like heavy-based kickers, which are great trainers. But like you're just not interacting the same. Second of all, I would say the mindset that people are in on the trainer compared to out on the road doing a piece of work is very, very different. I think a lot of athletes struggle indoor with just getting in the right mindset to hit it. And then the third thing is like there's nothing like a rolling terrain or a little bit of a headwind or something of outside to make you focus and to kind of keep keep it on the gas. And I'm not talking max efforts, but I'm just talking like steady state, like work pieces of work so i would say like the the differences between indoor and outdoor riding speak for themselves and i think people's mindset 
uh, as well is 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 a big part of it. Uh, just yeah, so that's kind of my quick take on on indoor to outdoor kind of riding. Chris can take on road to try. That's exactly what I was going to say. By the way, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but in terms of, of arrow and road, like we expect we expect a time trial position, a, a triathlon position, to not be able to produce the same power. Um, the pelvic rotation where the where the athlete is positioned on the bike is different. We're actually we know that's the whole reason that we're we're searching for some aerodynamic gains because that power output isn't identical. And so I think I think we hear that a lot. Certainly, like you'll get an email like, "Oh, I just did this FTP test and my and my and my power is ten percent, fifteen percent lower." And, and we would say, "Yeah, that's that's what what my expectation would be." And and at the end of the day, too, we need to make sure that we're looking at. The speed of the athlete and how the athlete is coming off of that bike and how they're running off of those positions. There's a bunch of other criteria rather than just crushing a number. And uh, but yeah, great question and something we, we hear all the time. Here's a couple of specifics um, in relation to like the power generating. When you think of a road position, you're very much in what I would call a, a uniformed or a globally athletic position. Like think of a box jump, think of a, a deadlift, think of a, a rugby tackle. You know, it's just a great low to the ground position, your hip isn't compromised, your lower back and your spine is in less flexion. It just feels more natural. You can kind of keep your scapula rounded back and you just have also on a road position, you've got that softening of your elbow to where it allows you to keep that position of your upper body, but you're not fixed. When you go into an aero position, first and foremost, all we just talked about with regard to anterior tilt of your pelvis or the spinal alignment, that's compromised. You're in this kind of, let's call it a fetal position, you know, a little rounded head down, elbows are planted on the arm pads and you don't have that like capability of keeping good posture. It's a compromised posture. Aero, aero position is a compromised posture. It's not a posture for max effort. Then, so they're the two main things that says like, like, you know, why when I'm doing a 20 minute piece of work, I can, I can hold three or five and then I'm doing like, you know, 279 on my, on my TT bike. And you're saying really like, you know, that's a 8% difference. Why is that? Well, they're also not probably testing these data, the, the, the power against each other fairly, meaning they'll poke it up 4%. Uh, ride it for 20 minutes or, you know, the, a local hill, ride it up up, up a, a local hill for 20 minutes, keep that power on. They'll play with uh, alternating between lower cadences, slightly different postures, sitting up taller, sitting lower. You get all that variability whilst you're riding against some gravity. So that's not a fair trial. And then when they're doing their 20-minute piece on their time trial bike, they're doing it on the flats and you take a right-hander and then you've got a tailwind and then your power starts dipping. But you're also going like, you know, significantly faster. And then you're only looking to try and take another right-hander to where you might find a bit of gravity or you might find the wind into your face. And then you can bring your numbers back up. So I would say if people want to really like, for the nerds out there that are got a road bike and got a TT bike that both have power meters and they've standardized the offset between the two, ride the two bikes over the same course and and all apples to apples on that. And yeah, ride the TT bike 20 minutes up a hill. And yeah, ride the road bike on your local box or on your local 5K or whatever your 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 kind of set piece of road is that you can get good data. And I think that they'll then be a bit more informed and less disheartened because they're not a lesser athlete or it may not be that their position is poor. Um, they're just kind of 
evaluating it on uh, an uneven kind of on an on uneven terms. Well, I think uh, an, an important uh, point for people to remember as well is that the rewards come from speed, not from who produces yeah, the highest it, power as well. Speed. Yeah. So, which is is obviously important. Now, that does lead me to you. It was a wonderful sort of segue that you did there around hill riding because. Uh, the next question here, and I, ha I have my coaching thoughts on this question, but I'd love the fitter's insight. And again, it's sort of a two-parter in many ways. How much of the athlete's training needs to be in race-specific? In other words, in aero, in TT. And then my follow-up question is going to be, for athletes that are climbing in racing up hills, is there a litmus, like a speed or a grade in which it's better for them to come out of TT position? I keep throwing you the double questions, but uh, training, race-specific TT, how much in aero, how much not? And then on a grade, when to come out of aero? Common questions. First one here, easier one. I like giving Chris the hard ones. Uh, the first one I would say is, uh, you know, percentage wise, I think if you simply split it down the middle and you say you're doing less than half of your training in an aero position, it's just going to feel a little bit more alien to you on, 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 you know, um, when it comes to racing. But I would also say, like, if you're the annual athlete, let's, let's talk about annual athletes because I think all of your listeners are, and most of us are, we get it, like, we get addicted to the process and we get it, we enjoy that we're kind of, we have different focuses. So I'd say, look, the annual athlete can can get a bit more particular in relation to race season. So if your typical athlete has a couple of warm-up races and an A race, they need to not be on like in a TT or tri position all year round. What they need to be is they need to be spending more time with that specificity, both at power, duration and position as the races get more important. I'm sure you as a coach, if someone says to you, hey, the weather was brutal, but I can I can do this or I can do that and I enjoy that. And I'm going to be a little rustier on the TT position heading into the first race. But I have a remedy for that because the weather changes and I'm going to spend a lot more time outdoors or whatever. Then I think that's that's reasonable. So I would say, let's just say it has to be more than 50 percent and it has to be, you know, in a build phase with specificity around your key races. Because you can do great base miles in a road position. You can do six hours on your tri bike and you can do four of it um, climbing or you can do it with friends and it can be social. But there will have to be like a period of time to where you're doing quality work. And you can't, let's say the biggest mistake to make would be to like, you know, ride aerobically in aero position when your heart rate's nice and low and when you're not really working very hard, but then doing your key pieces of work on the base bar and doing them up, up a small climb or into a headwind because you're, you're really only lying to yourself. You're hitting your numbers, but you're doing it with the assist of gravity against gravity or a wind, and you're not doing it in the posture. So you can, you can cheat your coach for a little while on that, but you'll get found out and you'll get found out come race day, you know? So I'll let Chris take the second one. Yeah, second part. Um, I, I think usually most of us about sixteen miles an hour is the point where, where you know you want to be an arrow above that speed. I think below that, you know, you kind of have to look at the situation, giving the body a little bit of a break. I, I always think of this as, in fact, we had an interesting client who only has a tri bike, uh, was going through some saddle trials, but the bulk of their training, the bulk of their riding, they're doing a lot of group rides with their club, a lot of those like long climbs in Boulder, and he was finding that. 
um, because he wasn't in arrow a lot that he wasn't enjoying the saddle because he was at the base bar the entire time. Right. So it was this interesting juxtaposition of like, well, we want you to, that's where we want the saddle focus to be for your racing. And so it was a little bit of a communication with their coach of like, Hey, let's tweak a little bit of that. Let's make sure that, cause he loved the saddle and the position in arrow. So, um, but I think generally speaking about 16 miles an hour, that's kind of the, the sweet spot um, where you want to be in arrow. That's where the gains are. And yeah. And I think, I might, I might add in, seeing as we're talking race specificity here, I think it's a good time for people to think about and how we approach things at IOG is like we're always looking for feedback from our athletes to tell us how they're doing in training and we want them to execute a race really well. And um, I think in executing a race really well, what they need to do, um, and particularly the squaddies that mightn't have somebody like walking them through a race profile, but I think what, what, what people who don't have a coach to walk them through an actual course profile is they need to break it up into sections. And let's say if you think of a 70.3 and someone's going to ride it around three hours and and, and the best on, the, on this call are going to ride it in two hours. But let's just say like for all of those people, they can apply Chris's kind of speed there to kind of the terrain. So let's say if somebody's going to ride like two hours, they're doing 26, 27 miles an hour. So like they get down to 16 or let's say 25 at least plus anyway. But if they get down to 16, they're coming out of arrow. But for somebody who's doing it in three hours, you know, and they're riding a 22 average or a 21 average, they might come out of it at around 13 or 12, you know. So, but look at a course, think about the periods where you're going your slowest, we'll say, which is generally a climb, are periods where you can kind of cap your power, which you should. You're, I'm sure a coach is going to tell you, ride at X, X power in relation to FTP on climbs. And there are opportunities that that power in a, in a long day doesn't feel super hard. So there are times where you can get a little drink on, you can stretch out your lower back, you can drop the cadence to 50 and 60, you can get out of the saddle, you can really use those left-right movements to kind of break yourself out of that flexed position, that kind of rounded aero position, and really get a chance to like crack your neck, open your lower back, open up your hips, get some fuel on board, manage the cadence, watch the top of the climb, and then game on. And you can do all that without spiking your heart rate. You can do that without going over whatever that limit is that you have on a climb. So what that might be an interesting task for people, particularly as they're tapering into a race, is, okay, you're not training as much, Look at the course specifically in relation to like where your speeds or your powers might be and 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 flag those areas as great areas to break up posture or get some calories or hydration on board. That's super advice. Really good advice. And, and talking advice, I, I want to make sure that we don't neglect the first timers out there. We have a lot of listeners that this year actually have coming out of the year that we've just had have said, I'm either coming back to the sport after a long layoff or I'm doing my first thing. I've always thought about it. I'm going to go and do it. So have you got any advice for athletes that are doing their first 70.3 or half Ironman or Ironman distance outside of, hey, make sure you train well and get a good bike fit? Shane, Chris? Yeah, I think, uh, one, have fun with the journey. I think you're going to get bombarded with a lot of information, and I think it's important to to soak and, and decipher, you know, rally around what's important to you. Um, I, I think very quickly you have to you have to learn a lot about a lot of different things. And I think the beautiful thing about the community is there's a lot of help. Um, there's a lot of coaches. There's a lot of, um, you know, people doing bike fit. But I think all of the key things about nutrition and uh, it's one of the reasons we love being at Purple Patch. It kind of represents that global approach to an athlete in all the different areas of, 
of body wellness and, and bicycle fit and hydration and off the bike work um, and, and ask a lot of questions. I would say an abundant amount of chamois cream. i would say like let's 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 think about even any any of our own personal journeys or some of our our customers here um the low-hanging fruit like how could we not say like if you've got somebody i i don't i don't mind who it is but as long as they're well like rated and they know what they're doing ensure like that you've kind of gotten some good counsel on do I feel comfortable on the bike how do I look in the bike do I generally think that i've got the main things ticked off and that means like just a good, comfortable saddle. You're not fighting yourself on the bike. You're not fighting your body and trying to maintain a position. That's the first thing. So that's not doesn't even have to be a bike fit. Just make sure you don't think, oh, because I'm new to triathlon, and I guess it's just a suffer fest. I better just everybody says it's hard. Like don't overlook just getting the contact points right. That's the first thing I tell people to do. I think the second thing to do, and I know you guys do it with your coaching programs, but like the things that instill confidence are good sessions and, and the belief that you're going to have a good day out or good sessions. And those sessions are either measured in, in, in kind of intensities that you're hitting or durations that you're taking off. And, you know, some of the classics is a little bit of overriding or over distance, you know, where somebody will say, well, listen, I didn't ride aero for 60 miles or 70 miles, but I've ridden 70 miles. And now when it comes to race day at 56, yeah, I know to ride 40 of those miles aero is going to be a challenge, but I have ridden 70 miles. So I'm kind of, I'm confident about that. And they're simple things. And then like when people are training specifically what they find, but this is normally hindsight, but let's think about it for the newbies. Like if you're learning about a power meter or you're learning about a heart rate, um, you have to think about, well, what's your range? And, and like, so, so if your heart rate, you were going to race at 140, well, what does 155 feel like? What does 125 feel like? And, and understand what they feel like, because what you want to do on race day is it's as some riders make the mistake of overbiking and plenty make the mistake of underbiking. So I would just say like, there should be a simple kind of like cue on your bike, whether it's a heart rate or a power or whatever, just to keep you on task. Like don't let your heart rate drop down to 125 or don't begin to enjoy the view so much that your power is now kind of drifted on you south and then you're like pushing it for the last 20 miles into transition when we know that's going to eat you pretty badly. So just explore in training, both from intensity and duration and give yourself some confidence from that and have the most simplest race plan you can. Yeah, one super. One thing I would add too, and it, this actually comes in a funny spot from just being around Ivan, and uh, I remember something that he said to a client because a lot of times, first-time athletes, right? It's the famous, the famous quote: "I just want to finish. I just want to complete it. I don't care how long it takes." And I remember Ivan at one point kind of pushing back and saying, "Yeah, well, that's great, and, and we want you to finish too, but let's think about that. Like, allow yourself the room to excel, and allow yourself the room to get better because." If you can finish a bike in half an hour, that's an extra half hour you don't have to hydrate. That's an extra half hour you don't have to think about nutrition. That's an extra half hour you get on the run. So I think that's always something that stuck with me and just a, a great reason to hang around this guy a little more. Uh, it's good. It's uh, And also for haircut advice as well, which you'll uh, always that's get plenty of. off today. So that's when you see me, I'll be uh, 10 pounds lighter. Thankfully, in the thankfully this is a podcast we don't have to inflict your fine listeners on my latest midlife crisis. 
Uh, I tell you what, we're all running away from our childhoods, Ivan. But uh, all good. Let's uh, let's move to <laughs> let's move to category number three because I think this is a th- this is going to be a little more quick fire. But but interestingly, I don't think I've ever I seldom hear this talked about. And uh, and I want to go about around problem management. We always about do this so that you have success. But but things unravel. So these next few questions are around managing problems, which we all know is a huge part of racing. And so first one is is just around sort of cycling longer distances globally. And it's from one of our athletes, and it's all around discomfort or fatigue, particularly in the shoulders and the back. And the question is, is there ways to differentiate between, hey, this is a normal response because you've been in the saddle for a long time versus, mm, Actually, your bike fit is probably off. In other words, what's sort of normal versus unnormal in discomfort in long race courses? I don't know. I might jump in and, and my first thoughts here, Matt, are how where, where is the athlete on the journey? Have they done these kind of distances before? And is it all like new to them? And then have they ever had any kind of positional review? Because it could be any number of things. But what you don't want for athletes is if they've never had a kind of a positional review or some guidance on that, yeah, they could be unnecessarily kind of uncomfortable. The other thing could be like as riders build up in distance and particularly when you talk about Ironman athletes or, you know, and they're getting into some of those over distance days. And if it's half Ironman athletes, they're riding up to, you know, four hours and five hours. And if it's Ironman distance athletes, they're riding up to six, seven and eight hours, depending on kind of who your coach is. But is this their first time through it? And is that their first like kind of rodeo? Some of that fatigue might come with it. I think the other thing we can't ignore either is like type of athlete is this? What kind of shoulder mobility have they? What kind of musculature have they? Do they swim well? Are they like little pit bulls like me? Are they muscular and not very supple? You know, so there's there's just different reasons to where elements of the type of training they do could impact and also if they're doing a big swim block that could really yeah some of a big swim block as you're finishing it overlaps with a really big bike volume but not high intensity and that can be tough so i would say look just observe the training but again the lowest hanging fruit is like have some kind of positional review and then is this your first rodeo and some of it might be reasonable and some of it may not so i know it's not black and white answer yeah, no, but I, I think it's a great answer because I, I think there's a couple of things to draw out of that. The first is that there's p- people are hesitant, I think, too often hesitant to review it. And they say, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to get a Fed or get a consultation to go through. And so they live in purgatory. It's like, no, like it's, it's actually, it, it's a wonderful investment. I'll say, I, I can say this because it's, it's not my service. So I, I can say it as a coach, it's really valuable. The other thing is the, the one thing I would just add from a coach's lens is how people sit on their bikes. If the position is wrong and if they don't have awareness, if you take a picture of someone 10 miles into an Ironman and 95 miles into an Ironman, it looks like they've had a bike fit at the turnaround. And they haven't. They're just interacting with the bike differently. And that can cause or amplify soreness and fatigue as well. So I think there's an educational process for many, many athletes out there. Yeah. And I would say, Matt, just to add on to that, the other thing I think that we've seen in our fitting careers, it's not unusual for a saddle to move, a bolt to come loose. Um, 
something to be not put back in the ideal position maybe when the bike was transported. There's a whole host of things that kind of go along with that kind of overall audit um, that, you know, the saddle moves, it points up a little bit more than it did. We get a different pelvic rotation, suddenly the back fires. So it's not always points to that, but I think that it's just one of those things to, to keep in mind could, could happen. Cool. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, Ivan, we're going to talk about your undercarriage, saddle sores. It's a really common challenge. And so I'd love to, a li- little check off on the cause, how to mitigate, how to manage. Yeah, cool. Uh, first thing is just understanding like that you're sitting on a saddle and in an upright position, you're under sit bones and in an aero position, you're more in your pubic rami, your pubic bones. You never sit in your pubic symphysis. You never sit in your taint. You know, you're always looking for bony structure. And um, I would say that the shape of the saddle is critical. And it's not even just width or one thing or density. It's kind of, it is, it is kind of a combination but I would say look um, we do a lot of like we call it saddle speed dating as part of the foundation of what we do when we're setting up riders positions and a rider as a fitter the rider has to just look over at you and nod and say yeah I like this this feels pretty good and that there's no science for that you can talk about pressure mapping you can talk about you know ischial tuberosity distances and other things that again companies try to do intentionally they're trying you know, to not just market, but improve their products. For the most part, I would say um, saddle shape is, is is very important. Next thing I would say is like good, good clothing. So like good quality clothing is very important and, and washing your clothing well and not like, you know, riding it from day to day and uh, keeping it right. Um, honestly, some chamois cream uh, is important. None of these on their own are going to fix a situation where a saddle isn't good. And if you develop a saddle sore, it's going to be a long road out of that. Um, let's just talk real specifically. If somebody has a saddle sore, they need to kind of get off it. And that's that's kind of tr- that's kind of brutal because you have to stop riding or you have to make a quick change on a saddle to ensure that you're not interacting with that contact point. So if you think of two centimeters if you were to trace two centimeters along your sit bone and you develop an ingrown hair or a little sore or a little cyst or a little something along that well then you'd probably be able to ride a centimeter away from that and avoid it but you're not going to be able to do that in the same saddle so if you if a race is bearing down and you've got a saddle sore you got to get off that saddle uh, whether you ever get back in it again could be another situation but you have to get off it for now and um, look, a very small percentage of our riders, uh, once we've kind of gone through the due diligence, end up with a saddle sore. And I would say that if somebody is dealing with saddle sores uh, continually or, or, you know, I would say more than once or twice is too often. You know, you can get a hair, you can get a situation to where you develop one. Um, but, you know, again, if someone's in a massive block or they do some 200 mile or they go on a four day ride with a bunch of buddies and they're riding, you know, they're going for something epic. OK, maybe that's an isolated incident. But I would say, like, you have to get off this saddle if if, if you've got a sore and the other variables are kind of outlined. Um, and yeah, and you can be there can be the small amount of people that just have a very very light skin over their sit bone and their pubic bones and and that's where the densities and the chamois are critical for but for most i think you can largely avoid it with the right shape saddle yeah uh, that's that's terrific uh i want to come back briefly to postural stress because it does this is a real tactical thing in in racing 
if if you do find yourself at mile 70 of an Ironman, mile 40 of a half Ironman, and you really are feeling postural stress, low back, shoulders, soreness, etc., is there anything that you can do to try and relieve that? Well, I'm going to put the mirror back on you, Dixon. What if you're 40 miles in? What's the first thing you're thinking of? It's you. It's your big day, Mac, Matt. Kelly's on the sideline. You can't let the show down. But what would you do if you start feeling that? What What would be your techniques? This is an only Ivan can make the interviewer ask the questions. It's, it's outrageous, but it's it's variance. It's changing you posture. Me, you give me the first thing you'd look at. I'll give you the first thing I'd look at. What would you look okay. at? Feeling like that. If you were feeling like that, I would uh, I would change my position on the bike. Me? No, we're to change you. You're 40 miles in. You're you're leading the race at this stage because of your swimming prowess. Mm. You're 40 miles in. Numbers are good, but you're beginning to unravel. What changes do you make? What's the smart decision that you're going to make? How did you know that I used to unravel in the back half of races? <laughs> Come on, Matt. So I'm under postural stress. I'm starting to decline. I, yep. One thing I would not do is stick into that same position and keep driving myself down that postural yep. stress because I know it's going to impact my run. And yep. so if I don't like the rhythm, I've got to change the rhythm. And I would stand up, stretch, shift my position, change uh, cadence and load any way that I could. There's my yeah. quick and dirty. Yeah, I think I'd be doing the same. Quick, quick thing I'd be checking on is, am I, am I where I need to be on my nutrition? Have I, like, have I done what I needed to do? Because you could be tying up there due to, like, you know, kind of, like, how much have you lost? What's the weather been like? Like, is this a muscular thing because I'm dehydrating here? I, that would be one thing I would think of. You shouldn't have made that mistake, but you should definitely factor it in. I think the next thing I'd do is I'd look a, a kilometer up the road or I'd look a half mile up the road and I'd say, where am I going to get a chance to kind of break this up? Is there some shelter from the wind? Is there something where like I can get out of the saddle, I can change my cadence, I can maintain my speed? And because the wind has been blocked by a certain bank on the road, think of Kona, the way it rolls on, on Kauai High. It's like, I'm going to wait to the bottom of the dip and that's going to protect me from the wind and then I'm going to get out of the saddle. So I'd look at the terrain around me. And like you said, I'd, I'd manage my cadence. I certainly wouldn't go high in the power. I might even back the power off 5% for five minutes and say, can I figure this out for five minutes and try and make a smart decision? And... Um, and yeah, so that that would be my 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 kind of retort to what you would have done. So similar. Yeah, no, I think I think that's great. Really, really, really good thoughts. I uh, I liked it a lot. Um, I, I want to ask one more around problem solving, which is around oh the thing that we don't like to talk about too much, but bike mechanicals, and you know, but the the mechanicals that happen in racing, some of them are random, unfortunate, etc. But what are the best, what are the most common ones that you see, I guess, and what are, what are the ways to avoid it or at least mitigate risk? Can can I throw, yeah. while you're thinking about that, I'm going to throw one other little yeah. quick question in. Um, Matt, you were talking about like racing specifically, and we talked about certain things and managing things on the race course. One thing that we didn't talk about, and I, I think most of your athletes do have like aero helmets and, and, and do probably not wear them enough for good reason because they get a lot of criticism for being that tri-dark. But get your race helmet out earlier than race week. 
get it out mm-hmm. and figure out how your glasses interact with the with the top of the helmet or if you're wearing a visor how how you position that on your head and where the edge of the visor is in relation to your line of sight and um, think about how if you wear an aero helmet more towards your hairline i know it doesn't feel as uh, safe to protect your noggin but what it does is it sticks the tail down between your scapula and it also gives you a better line of sight to where, like, if you think of a Giro Arrowhead, and I like the helmet, but it has quite a long nose on the front, we'll say. So you have to, like, lift your head more to look out under the nose. That lifting your head more could be 10 degrees more extension in your neck. And now, like, you've been riding great in training, but now, like, you're coming undone 25 miles in. And it's like, what's going on? Like, nothing has changed. But really, you've overlooked the fact that your line of sight and your helmet has changed. And you haven't done enough training in that. So dust off the aero helmets, get them out, roll them back in your forehead like uh, like uh, P. Diddy would wear a baseball cap or something. Roll it back, get it out of your line of sight, and that will kind, of, um, re- kind of reduce the amount of chance that you'll have of having that head pop up like a, like a periscope, like some people call it. So that was one little nugget, I hope. I hope it's a nugget that your listeners can take. Chris can talk yeah. about all the mechanicals that they won't have. Yeah, especially since we're going to talk about it, there won't be any mechanicals. No, I think uh, you know, like like let's let's work backwards. I think um, having having started my career as a bike mechanic, so much of so much of it is just preventive maintenance and good solid maintenance, and also just having a plan of attack for your equipment. Most athletes are going to get in a very very big big training window. They're going to be fatigued from that. There's a lot of effort to maintain that. And it's very easy to suddenly realize I just put 3000 miles on my chain. I just put more wear and tear on my drivetrain. So generally what I like to do is, is about three to four weeks out of a major event. Make sure if you're doing your own work, you're going, taking a proper assessment of your bike. If you, if you have somebody you're taking it to make that appointment up front. One thing that all athletes want to keep in mind, bike shops are, are, crazy busy at the moment so you want to have those calls before uh, 10 days before your event because you probably won't be able to get in so have those drivetrains checked have those chains lubricated have those tires replaced if they're if they're at all dodgy we want to remember that you know getting to the starting line is is we want to be there in as fresh a state equipment wise as we can be it's not just about getting to the start line with everything kind of fatigued and clapped out and and about ready to fray so for me, that's, you know, somebody having hands on going through the entire bike, checking all the bolts, making sure the tires, um, making sure the race wheels are in correctly, that, that the chain meshes up with the cassette that's on there, that all the bolts are tight. Very, very important. I would, I would also chime in here a little and say that the lucky individually coached and squad members of Purple Patch will have all this dialed. But for those that haven't, haven't uh, joined up yet and might be listening to this podcast, Think about like race simulations, you know, and doing it like a week or two out. This is something that I know, Matt, you put your athletes through. But like a race simulation, like two weeks out, just means you're more organized, means you've everything checked out and ridden once. And 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 think of all the hassle you're taking away from yourself uh, the week of a race, whether you're driving or flying or whatever, it doesn't really matter. So bringing the race simulations is a great way to kind of like double uh, to, to kind of pre-check your equipment and also to kind of capitalize on what I was saying about like aero helmets or, oh, I bought this lovely race suit from Endura and and I put it on like the morning of the race and then it, you know, 
shave my nipples off. It's like, oh, interesting. That's not a great start to the day. You know, it's like it wouldn't happen with an Indora race suit. They know what they're doing. But what I mean is like get your equipment dialed in and don't don't do the typical try thing, have it all ordered and unpackage it the night before and then like wing it. So uh, just chime in on the equipment with race simulations is a great way to snuff out those kind of problems. And keep your, keep your nipples intact. <laughs> keep, keep, there you go. That's, um, in fact, for social our social media promotion, Ivan O'Gorman says, keep your nipples intact. There's a T-shirt. So category four, I, I promised many of my athletes I would do this, but we're going to do this as a quick fire round. So we got five minutes to hit this category. And it's for the tech nerds. It's for the guys, the, the folks, the women that love equipment. And, uh, and so some quick thoughts, if you can. And each one of these is probably a podcast in itself, and it requires context. But here we go. We're going to see if we can get through seven or eight of these in five minutes. So that gives us the context. Here we go. Number one, thoughts on full arm rest bars. Full arm rest bars, uh, again, if, if a suitable contact point, they can be beneficial. I think for first time age group athletes that could provide a little bit too much structure, we have to remember that we still have to get out to the breaks um, and we want our athletes to feel comfortable to do that. So I think they have their place. Um, definitely where a lot of development is happening. Yeah, stability, Matt. You need to know what you're sizing it to because if you go to speed bar and it's 4K for your front end, you need to know what you're what you're sizing, and I think like people spending anywhere from a thousand to four k on the front end of their bike are going to have some aerodynamic data to drive those decisions. So I would say like full contact makes sense. There's some companies that are bringing out some modular stuff. The arm pads are a little bit bigger. The interaction with your forearm um, is is there, and it's modular, and it's maybe you know um, a bit more adjustable. So just just weigh up adjustability aerodynamics and so on and the aforementioned companies make great products but they're not for everybody you need to know what you're what you're ordering okay um aligned with this thoughts on becoming more and more popular hands sort of in front of eyes position the mantis position it's called quick thoughts on that um has some benefit could be beneficial i think like iog it, it, we want to see it a little bit more data driven than just everybody's doing it um I think sometimes those those general themes um, can be can work for some, can be problematic for others. Uh, we still want to think about line sight. It, it also is equipment by driven by equipment. What equipment somebody has? There's a lot of bikes on the marketplace that don't allow that or introduce some other variables when that's happening. I would say collectively it tests pretty well, but not for everybody. I would say from a comfort standpoint, if you think of your forearm as zero. So everybody's thinking they're laying on the front of their bike and their elbow and their wrist are at the same level. So it's horizontal. That's the forearm at zero. When you ride a forearm at zero, it puts a bit more stress in your shoulders. Jan Frodeno does a great job of it, but he also has like incredibly good shoulder mobility. So as that hand comes up, the forearm angle increases and it can come to a point to where it, it strikes a balance that there's less stress in your shoulders. You feel planted on the elbow and in turn, it doesn't test slow generally. I think what Chris was alluding to is you stick your hands up too high and then you're poking your head up to see out over your hands and you're creating another situation. And also if your hands are too high, where's your aero extensions? Where's your aero bottle? What's the base bar doing? 
How many other like frontal or lead edges are you creating by like rotating your hands up? Because now you've got a 22 ounce bottle that's facing the wind, you know, because it's under your forearms. So um, with, in moderation, let's say in moderation. Super. Uh, aerodynamics of bottle position, any guidance or preferred hydration or nutrition storage solutions? Depends on the frame. Yeah. I would say an aero bottle in general and the down tube. The down tube is the one kind of like uh, at 45 degrees to the ground, we'll say, in case anybody's confused. The seat tube is the one that's more in line with with your leg and where your seat post is. But I would say like aerodynamic bottles on a on a on a an aero frame are generally better, but you've got to think about if you drop that bottle, you can't grab a bottle off the course and just stick it in that cage because that cage is shaped for the bottle. Um, I would say the the cheapest bottle from an aerodynamic drag standpoint is the one hiding behind your hands. But as I just said in the last question, if you rotate your hands up super high and the bottle is essentially standing at 45 degrees to the oncoming prevailing wind, that's a lot of surface area. So a bottle between your hands as long as it's not too exposed. And um, a bottle bit behind your butt is a great backup plan or it's a good bottle to have if you're putting diesel in it. So, I mean, it's concentrated with, with, with fuel. And then, like, you know, let's say two hours into your Ironman, you reach back and you grab that diesel bottle and then you put that between your hands or you put that in the down tube. So that's a bottle that you'll pull from behind your butt uh, once in a race or you'll have a bottle behind there as an emergency in case you drop a bottle, as long as you're not doing a bunch of climbing. But it's not a bottle that you reach into every 12 minutes or every 10 minutes or whatever. So carry a bottle behind your butt, but only do it as a placeholder until you're putting it in a more optimized position. And some of those zero bottles can be tricky to get in and out, and you definitely want to practice that as well. Super. Great one. Thank you, Chris. That's great. Two, two more really quick. We've got, we've got literally got a couple of minutes here. Um, this might be too big. You can send people to a resource. We can add resources to the show notes. Any thoughts or guidance on tire pressure? Tire pressure is a reflection of, of what rim somebody's using, what tire, what size tire they're using. Generally, the larger the tire, the more round the diameter, the lower the tire pressure that's going to be called for with as much rolling resistance or with as low a rolling resistance as you would normally have. What's the best resource out there? Bicycle rolling resistance. Yeah, bicyclerollingresistance.com do a great job of kind of looking at rolling resistance numbers. Um, big mistake, too much inflation, tire gets too hard, doesn't corner well, um, also tends to skip over pavement and create actually more friction. Yeah, you're not transferring power to the exactly. to the road. So like it's it's basically a combination of the rim, the width of the tire, and your body weight and trying to get a sweet spot in there that you're not hopping off the road, nor is it like riding like a flat. Amazing. Okay. My last question, this will be a quick and dirty one. I can't invest in a brand new bike on my existing bike. What's the one biggest bang for the buck upgrade ahead of race day? Small motor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get a coach, get a bike fit. No, aero helmet for me, I suppose. Like, you know, because when you think of it, Matt, we take some of the like top athletes to the wind tunnel and there are, are athletes that I've worked with that have ridden road helmets in, in Kona. And then they kind of get in their own head that they can't ride a helmet because of heat or management. But like, then you put it in a wind tunnel and you say, okay, that road helmet against that aero helmet is eight watts. And you're like, WTF. I need to be getting over that uh, bridge pretty quickly. So a road helmet is good. But again, you put a road helmet on someone who's sitting up like a tourist and it just makes it even look worse. I'd say get the basics right. But I think, or an aero helmet, get the basics right. But I think an aero helmet is good. And 
Um, what solid, else? What else yeah, would be the best thing? a solid position. A consultation with with you guys or us guys or somebody. Like again, like you know, imagine if somebody and again, it's not driving business to us, but if someone said, "Okay, I'm going to drop two hundred dollars on the new Cask Pro Evo helmet," but they haven't done all the other things that we just touched on in the last hour. Hold on to your money. Spend that two hundred on any of the other things that we spoke about, and it'll probably serve you better. I was going to say exactly that is, and you know what my coach's thing that I be don't spend money. Seriously, get a consultation with someone that generally has your best interest at heart that wants to help. And and that that has come through in spades in this hour of power as we've just done um, a lot of information. Uh, so much so. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, any where can where can folks listeners find you guys? Find us. Easy. IvanOGorman.com, I guess. Um, and Instagram um, is another area you can find us. And yeah, let us just take this opportunity to thank your followers, Matt, and people that tune into this podcast and the great response that we've had from the community. And as Chris said earlier about the OCAs, like we've gotten a huge boost from how much we kind of help people. And it, honestly, we were reluctant to do it because we thought it mightn't be as good as what something was in person. But look, at the end of the day, we're just helping people to try and make smart decisions and they're grateful for that. So we're grateful to them for coming to us. So keep on, have a great year. Everybody's looking forward to getting back out and uh, yeah. plaster it with a big smile and go as hard as you can. Race well. <laughs> Embrace the journey. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. Take care. Cheers. And thank you. Goodness me. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ivan. A wealth of information. Really appreciate it. As you could probably tell, I could have carried on talking there for another three hours. But that was something that we can truly label an hour of power. I hope that helped, guys. Once again, you can find the gang, Chris and Ivan, at ivanogorman.com. And of course, you can come and see us at the Purple Pratt Center in San Francisco. We'd love to help you. And so, as we march forward next week, it's all about the run. We cap it off. But until then, keep charging and get excited. Racing is coming. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers.